Well, we've arrived at our final ANCON session. What a week. I'm assuming there's plenty of people here this afternoon who are feeling really tired. Hand up if you're feeling really tired. Be honest. So we do have a little tradition here at ANCON on Fridays. If you didn't get enough sleep last night and you feel tempted to just shut your eyes just for a little while during the talk, don't let that happen. Um, so what I'm going to encourage you, if that happens to you, stand up. I mean it, stand up, take your book and go and stand around the edges and you can follow along while standing up. It's much harder to fall asleep when you're standing up. You might have used that as a study. You've never used that as a study technique. Um, whenever you feel those Zs coming upon you, take charge, go and stand up. We always have a good number of people standing, so don't feel embarrassed. Good on your brother. You don't want to miss out on this time in God's Word. So let's start by talking about spiritual warfare. Turn with me to page 39, page 39 of your book. Spiritual warfare is a hot topic in some Christian circles. It links in to the ideas that we've been talking about tonight because some people, some Christians say that the reason maybe you don't experience freedom from particular sins as a Christian might be because you have some demon influencing you internally. And the argument runs, if that's the case, then unless you deal with the demon, which means binding the demon in some sort of way, commanding him to leave, then there's every chance that you'll sin again. So hence there's a fair bit of interest in what you might call deliverance ministry. And then once you start reading about this stuff, you see that there's quite a lot written down now about demonology, about how demons organise themselves geographically, hierarchically, how they oppress people down through generations or through particular sins or traumatic events. So they say. What do we make of all of this from a biblical standpoint? What I'm going to do is plant seven, it's not deliberately seven, it's just seven firm and sure biblical stakes in the ground to help us assess this type of ministry. Point number one, or stake number one, evil is real. The Bible is very clear that there are non-material but real forces of evil. There on page 39, you can see Ephesians chapter 6, which is the classic spiritual warfare text from verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. There is a devil, an evil one. There are spiritual forces of evil. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Discipline yourselves, keep alert, like a roaring lion. Your adversary, at your adversary the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. In Jesus' earthly ministry, as we saw back on Monday, he healed many 
who were oppressed by demons. And the testimony of many, both here and overseas, is that from time to time you may meet someone who seems overwhelmed by dark spiritual forces, where you may say they seem, well, people call it as possessed, but possession isn't really a word that the Bible uses for those who are under the influence of a demon. Hence, people now sort of talk about people being maybe demonized, under the influence of some sort of demon. But evil is real. Point number two, the evil one has been defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the crucial point of which the evil one himself would love to convince you otherwise. That is, at this very point in time, Jesus is Lord of all and the devil is not. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by his Father, Matthew chapter 28, which frankly doesn't leave the devil with much if Jesus got all authority in heaven and earth. God is sovereign, the devil is not, so his activity is completely hemmed in within the boundaries that God has set. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that through his own death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is not merely an opposed power or even a struggling power, he is a destroyed power. He hasn't yet disappeared, that's still to come, but he's been thoroughly and definitively conquered. Stake number three. In the light of point two, there is no need to fear. There is no need to fear. In James chapter four, verse seven, we're told, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not resist the devil and possibly you might make it out alive. It's resist the devil and he will flee from you. You've got nothing to fear here if you're in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6 is also very positive. While it says there's a struggle... And the word used in verse 12 there is a word used for hand-to-hand combat or wrestling. It's a struggle, but there is no doubt that if we remain strong in the Lord and the strength of His power, verse 10, wearing the armour He provides, then we will be able to stand. It's not in doubt. No doubt about the outcome, unless we choose to give way. But that leads me to Stake number four, but also there is no basis for foolish arrogance. There is no basis for foolish arrogance. Both James and Ephesians 6 are clear that the strength for resisting the devil comes from God. Like every aspect of our growth as Christians, it's by God's strength that we persevere and grow. That's the point of verse 11 and verse 13 in Ephesians 6. You ought to put on, the God, put on the armor that God supplies in order to stand firm. So you can't do it in your own strength. You need what God lovingly gives us. Martin Luther was a 15th century German Protestant reformer. Don't get him confused with Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer back in the 15th century. I quite like Martin Luther's approach to the demonic, He had a suitable disdain for the devil that reflected a great confidence 
in the victory and salvation of Christ. It didn't come out of some sort of inflated pride. It was just a deep confidence in what Jesus had done and who he, now Luther, was now that he was in Christ. Have a look at what he wrote there at the bottom of page 39. He wrote, It is not a unique, unheard of thing for the devil to thump about and haunt houses. In our monastery in Wittenberg, I heard him distinctly. For when I began to lecture on the book of Psalms, and I was sitting in the refectory after we'd sung matins, studying and writing my notes, the devil came and thudded three times in the storage chamber, that is the area behind the stove, as if dragging a bushel away. Finally, as it did not want to stop, I collected my books and went to bed. I still regret to this hour that I did not sit him out to discover what else the devil wanted to do. I also heard him once over my chamber in the monastery, that is, over his bedroom in the monastery. But when I realised that it was Satan, I rolled over and went back to sleep again. <laughs> Nothing to fear. Why? Because he's in Jesus. He's in Christ. Contrast that with what I read in one book, which was written by someone who said they were an evangelical, but who thought other evangelicals were making too little of the devil and his demons. This is what he wrote in the book I read. He says, I believe God automatically grants us a certain amount of protection from enemy activity, but we do not seem to be completely protected. Why is not clear. It seems clear, though, that when we claim more protections for ourselves and those under our authority, more protection is granted. I have experimented with blessing myself with protection from disease and accident. And it seems that much of what could have happened has not. I hate to think what could have happened if I had not exercised my right to regularly claim God's protection. Let me be clear, that is fear and superstition and ritualistic and almost magical view. It's not Christian at all. It might be done in Jesus' name, but it actually has the character of the evil one about it. Why do I say that? Because it's fearful. It's reliant on works for protection. If, I, if you don't claim this, you won't be given it by God. So you better claim it and, oh, who knows what might have happened if I hadn't. And anecdotally, speaking with Christians who come out of that sort of engagement with the demonic, it is full of fear. The very practices that supposedly are meant to keep the evil one at bay actually seem to generate fear in the believer. Well, that's not right. And it should at least make us step back and reevaluate what's going on there in that sort of deliverance or prayer counseling. Well, stake number five the relentless presence of the Spirit in the believer. The relentless presence of the Spirit in the believer. The claim that Christians can be demonized. That is, somehow that a Christian could be under the controlling or pervasive internal influence of a demon and be totally unaware of it is just wrong and damaging. 
Of course, we all struggle to put off sin, to, to kill off the misdeeds of the body. And the temptations of the evil one are real. But the idea that a Christian can be under the control of a demon flies un, in the face of some, some pretty key Bible texts. Start with 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Doesn't seem to be much room left there for the demonic to be in a Christian. We're told straight up, the one who is in you, the Spirit of God, is greater than the one who is in the world. And it matches the very clear binary distinction that we've seen. Christians are not in the flesh, they're in the Spirit. The one who is in you is greater and different to the one who is in the world. Or later in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, we know that those who are born of God do not continue in sin, but the one who is born of God, sorry, the one who is born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Very clearly says that the evil one does not touch those who are born of God. Whilst the whole world, that is the world outside of Jesus, lies under the power of the evil one. But those born of God, who have his spirit, they are his children. And they're not touched by the evil one. It's very, it seems very clear. And it's a very definitive distinction. And we can look at more passages to make the same point. Stake number six. Beware of giving the devil a foothold. Beware of giving the devil a foothold. Unrepentant sin in the life of a Christian is a toxic hypocrisy that destroys faith. I'll say that again. Unrepentant sin in the life of a Christian is a toxic hypocrisy that destroys faith. Sin gives the enemy an opportunity not to invade you, not to take up residence in you or send a demon into you, all of which some people will say, but we've clearly seen that's not possible. No, sin gives the enemy an opportunity to accuse you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 describes the devil as the great accuser. The accusation that you can't really stop this sin or don't worry, it's not a very significant sin anyway. Those are all lies from the evil one and they're aimed at keeping you engaged in destructive, sinful behavior. Because the devil knows that that sort of hypocrisy may well ultimately destroy your faith. The solution? Well, the solution is not discover if a demon has invaded your life, find out his name, find out if there are other demons too, identify the top demon, command him to leave, invite the Holy Spirit to fill the space left so that seven more demons don't come and fill it up. That is what some books tell you. That is not the solution. What are we meant to do? The biblical answer is, by the Spirit, put to death sin. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Spirit-empowered repentance. Keep short accounts with God because once you indulge in temptation, it is just an easy snare of the devil to tempt you into that sin again. 
Listen again to Martin Luther. It's on page 40 there. This is, this is great. He says, when I go to bed, the devil is always waiting for me. When he begins to plague me, I give him this answer. Devil, I must sleep. That's God's command. Work by day, sleep by night. So go away. If that doesn't work and he brings out a catalogue of sins, you know, so the devil's sort of accusing, he's lying there and he's just, he's just feeling the weight of all his sins and he just wants to go to sleep, he's just feeling the weight of his sins, he says, yes, old fellow, I know all about it and I know some more that you've overlooked. Here are a few extras, put them down. If he still won't quit and presses me hard and accuses me as a sinner, I scorn him and say, Oh, St. Satan, pray for me. Of course, you've never done anything wrong in your life. You alone are holy. Go to God and get grace for yourself. If you want to get me all straightened out, I say, physician, heal thyself. Stake number seven. What shape ought our response take to spiritual attack and the spiritual forces of evil. What shape ought our response to take? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, where we started, the picture of the spiritual warfare. It's all very cosmic and exciting, isn't it? Our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds exciting. But before we get carried away, notice that the armour with which God's given us to equip ourselves The armour is all very pedestrian. There's no putting the demons on trial. There's no exorcisms. There's no complex and detailed series of steps on how to identify and bind and expel any demons that might be demonising you. The armour we're to put on are the fundamentals of the Christian faith and life. So go back to page 39. Look again at Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 14. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. At the time Paul's writing, he's writing to Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. The image of a Roman soldier and his uniform was very familiar to the people he's writing to. So Paul uses that well-known part of the Roman soldier's armour to describe how we as Christians are to arm ourselves with the armour of God makes sense that Paul starts with the belt because the belt is what holds the rest of the armour in place. It holds the rest of the the armour together. And for us, we're to stand and fasten the belt of truth around our waist. Think about that for a minute. The starting point, the fundamental piece of armour that God's given us is his truth. That makes sense because our enemy, the devil, is the father of lies. That's what Jesus said. And so we take our stand against him and the power God gives us armed with God's truth. And as I've reflected on the rest of the armour Paul describes here, it strikes me that God's truth is fundamental to each of them. We're to put on there the breastplate of righteousness. That is, we take our stand against the evil one by doing the truth. That's what it means to be righteous, to live righteously. We do the truth, living it out, not giving in to temptation. 
We put on our feet whatever shoes will make us ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. So we do whatever we need to do to proclaim God's truth, which is there in the gospel that announces every person can have peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. We take up the shield of faith. That is, we put our trust in God's truth. We live trusting him and not the lies of the evil one, since the evil one just wants to destroy you. And notice what Paul says there, when we take up the shield of faith, we're able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The evil one is shooting flaming arrows of lies at you. That's what it's like to live in the world. To have his shooting, lying arrows coming at you. Lies like, Jesus is not enough. You need a successful career. You need sex to be satisfied. God doesn't really love you. You'll never be forgiven for that sin. And a thousand other flaming lies that he shoots at you. And he wants to take you down with those flaming arrows. So stand firm by taking up that shield of faith with which you can quench all his lying arrows. Trust in God's truth, what he has revealed in the scriptures. Take the helmet of salvation and put it on your head. Salvation is the gift of God to all of those who believe in the truth. And finally, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've come full circle now in the armor of God. The word of God is the truth. How did Jesus do battle with the devil when he was in the wilderness? He used the word of God. He addressed Satan's lies with God's truth from Scripture. We go into battle against the spiritual forces of evil, armed not with a seven-point plan to expel demons or special phrases about using Jesus' name. We take God's truth. We take our Bibles. What God has given us to wield is his spirit-empowered word. And as we hold on to God's word, as we announce it to one another in the wider world, the spirit cuts through the lies and the deceptions of the evil one. But it's not just about us as individuals. We're in this fight together. So Paul finishes off in verse 18, encouraging us to pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer for all the saints. That is, for the rest of our sisters and brothers in Christ. What do you think it means to pray in the Spirit? Pray in the Spirit. I'm going to say it's not a special sort of prayer, as though there's sort of regular prayer and then there's super in the Spirit prayer. It's certainly not praying in tongues or anything like that. How do I know that? Well, look at Paul's instruction there. It's to pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer. That is, Every prayer is to be prayed in the Spirit. So whatever it means, it has to be true of every prayer that you see in the Bible, in the New Testament, which just means it, it can't mean pray in tongues all the time because there's all sorts of prayers in the New Testament that are not in special sort of angelic tongues. So I think praying in the Spirit means praying in line with what the Spirit wants us to pray. How do I know what the Spirit wants me to pray? Well, it's not a mystery. I don't have to wait for a special revelation from the Spirit about what should I pray today because He's already given us a special revelation of what He wants to pray. It's here in His book. 
The Bible is the Spirit's word to us about God's will. When we pray in line with what the Bible teaches, we're praying in the Spirit. And one of the clear teachings of the Bible is that we should love one another. That's why Paul then says, to that end, in terms of praying in the Spirit, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. When you're praying for others, that they might stand firm in the strength of God's power, you're praying in the Spirit. So as we reflect on Ephesians 6, which is one of the most explicit passages in the New Testament about spiritual warfare, it's not about casting out demons. It's all about God's truth. It's about the gospel. We're to stand firm in the truth of the gospel about Jesus. That's how we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. So there's some biblical stakes in the ground when it comes to spiritual warfare. I hope that's helpful. But what else should we be doing with the Spirit in daily life? Well... This is what I want you to do. I want you to stand up, but while you stand up, I want you to turn to page 47. So stand up, turn around, turn to page 47, high-five the person next to you, and sit back down. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, so my question is this, whenever I'm putting annual conference together and trying to think about all the truths from God's Word on a particular topic and think about how we're going to divide it up, how we're going to organise it, there's no right way of doing it, but I do always try to think, what can we say on Friday? I know everyone's a bit tired. What can we do to sort of wrap up the whole week? So this is my attempt to try to draw things together with these final two points. First of all, Nine things that the Scriptures urge us to do with the Spirit. Talking about what should we do with the Spirit in daily life, here's nine things that the Bible tells us. Let's smash through these as a way of trying to summarise the different things we've talked about this week, right? So you've seen most of these. You've got to get a pen out, write it down in the, in the gap, or if you didn't bring a pen because, you know, it's Friday and you're semi-comatose, then you've got a phone, take notes on your phone. I know you can do that at the speed of light, so, you know, just do that, right? Nine things to do with the Spirit. Number one, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Paul exhorts us in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. As Christians, as we heard, we're no longer in the flesh, we're in the Spirit, because the Lord has poured out His Spirit into our hearts and minds. So walk on through life in the Spirit. In all those little decisions each day, when you're at church or at EU afternoon tea or sort of just sitting and let you think, oh, should I speak to that person? Oh, I feel so tired. Do I really have to love them right now, Lord? Or when that tempting thought pops up in your mind, the jealousy or the anger or the pride or the impure sexual thought or the greed, walk by the Spirit at that point. 
Because if you walk by the Spirit at that point, you won't gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. Because remember, the Spirit and the flesh are not next-door neighbours where you can just pop in to visit each other. They're on opposite sides of the street. As a Christian, you're not in the flesh anymore. You've crucified the flesh and its desires. You're in the Spirit because the Spirit of the living God is in you. So walk by the Spirit, which leads to number two. Be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Romans 8. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. The real mark of being led by the Spirit is not being somehow attuned to what the Spirit might spontaneously suddenly speak to you. That's not what it really looks like to be led by the Spirit. The way Paul talks about it here, being led by the Spirit, is about killing off sin in your life with extreme prejudice. Like that crazy bug that dropped onto my desk that I talked about on Tuesday night. Take that attitude. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Kill off sin. We assume that being led by the Spirit is about him telling us what we should do in a particular life situation. Um, which subject should I do at uni this semester? Which jobs should I take? Well, quite possibly, God does not have a special secret plan for what subjects you should take, what degree you should do, what job you should do, or even who or if you should get married. Think about it this way. Where is the Spirit interested in leading you? He's leading you to Jesus, to become more like Jesus. The Spirit's main concern isn't the general life questions of what clothes should I wear today, Lord? His main concern is with holiness situations. Not life situations, holiness situations. Are you going to be holy, live for Jesus in this moment in front of you? That's why being led by the Spirit here is about being, putting to death sin in the body. Kill off sin in your life in the power of His Spirit. That's what it really means to be led by the Spirit. Third, on a similar theme, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God as Christ has forgiven you. See, when we don't kill off sin in our lives by the power of His Spirit within us, we make the Spirit sad. We grieve the Spirit. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He has taken up residence in you to transform you bit by bit, day by day, into the image of the Lord Jesus. So don't make the Spirit sad by hanging on to sin in your life, particularly, as Paul talks about here, in your relationship with other people. Get rid of bitterness and anger and slander and malice. I mean, you could add to that list, isn't it? And envy. 
and sexual immorality and abuse and violence. Instead, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, love one another, because love is the premier mark of the Spirit's powerful presence among us. Number four, be filled with the Spirit. From Ephesians chapter 5, so do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be a fool, he says, and get yourself full of alcohol. The Lord's will for you is to be filled with his spirit, not with alcohol. And whereas filling yourself with alcohol, he says, leads to drunkenness and debauchery, just general ungodly behavior, being filled with the Spirit leads to an outpouring of godly encouragement to one another through song and thankful praise to God. And to be filled with the Spirit is a command of God here. This is His will for you. Be filled with His Spirit. The Spirit is already in you. Let him fill you by focusing your spirit-empowered energy on encouraging others with God's truth and praising God rather than your energies going into getting drunk like a fool who brings no praise to the name of the Lord Jesus in the way they live. So be filled with the Spirit. Number five, over the page, page 48. Be fervent in the Spirit. From Romans chapter 12, verses 11 to 13. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, you might not know the word fervent. You might not be a word you use. It just means passionate intensity. Show passionate intensity in the spirit. Now, the, the word spirit there, should that be a small s spirit? Be fervent, passionate in your own internal spirit? Or should it be a capital S spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit? Only context can tell you which one should be. And there's not a lot to go on in this particular passage. But practically, experientially, the application is the same. Show passionate intensity in showing the Lord. That's both God's work in you by His Spirit and your work. We can only show Him, serve Him, sorry, passionately if His Spirit is working in us. But we can't just sit back and be passive and expect Him to do it. He's the hand inside our glove. And with his spirit working his energy inside us, we're to get on and serve the Lord with passionate intensity. Instead of being slack and slothful, we're to be full of passionate intensity in our spirit, serving the Lord. And you can see there some of what that passionate serving of the Lord looks like. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in the face of suffering, being constant in prayer. 
There's a word right there from the Lord for the you know from the Lord to me. Be constant in prayer. That's what it means to be fervent in spirit. But also they're contributing to the needs of the saints, loving one another, showing hospitality. Wouldn't it be great if we, as this generation of the Evangelical Union, if we were all serving the Lord with passionate intensity, with real Holy Spirit-fueled fervor on campus, in class, in our churches, in the wider community? That's not beyond you because you, we together, are a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, the next two We've already seen this afternoon because they came in the Ephesians 6 passage that we looked at under spiritual warfare. Number six, wield the sword of the Spirit. Wield the sword of the Spirit. That is grab hold of God's truth in the Scriptures. That's how you're going to cut down and expose the lies of the evil one. And number seven, pray in the Spirit. And we've talked about what that might mean to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. And then number eight, Fan into flame the Spirit. From 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through my laying on of hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Have a look there at verse 8. You can see from verse 8 that the context for Timothy was one where he was scared about suffering for talking about Jesus. Do you relate to that? It's all lovely talking about Jesus here at Ancon, isn't it? Amongst many brothers and sisters in Christ. What the thought of talking about Jesus on campus with your friends... Is that a bit scary? Well, Timothy was tempted to keep quiet, to be ashamed of the truth about Jesus. So Paul has to say to him, don't be ashamed. The spirit within you is one of power and of love and of self-discipline. So join me in suffering for the gospel, he says, by the power of God within you. Fan into flame the spirit in your life. You know what it's like? Have you ever lit in a fire? Have you ever actually had to make a fire? You know, you actually put the little kindling there and a couple of branches. Or you've watched Survivor anyway. You've seen them. They make fire, right? And you light the, you, you get it lit and then you have to fan it into flame. You know, you, you, blow the, you have to get the oxygen to it so that it can... Well, Paul's saying there, fan into flame the spirit within you. That's what you're to do with the spirit. How can you fan into flame the spirit within you? How can you do that? Here it is. You prayerfully step out in faith. You step out in trust that the Lord will keep his promise and empower you by his spirit to speak for him and to love others. And that's a great encouragement when it comes to stepping out onto campus on Monday morning or you know, Tuesday afternoon if you're an art student. <laughs> hey, I've not made any jokes like that all week. Look, <laughs> the, the spirit of self-discipline um, apparently just failed me. Um, yeah. 
we have been given by God 60,000 students to love with the gospel of Jesus. So let's not be timid. Let's fan into flame the gift of His Spirit within us. There's festival opportunities that you can create for your friends. There's international students to meet. Let's pray for revival in us and on our campus. Pray for boldness. Don't be passive. Instead, fan into flame the gift of His Spirit within you. Were you thinking about making that LRLR pledge last night? To prayerfully consider how you might sacrificially serve those less reached, less resourced in cross-cultural Sydney, Australia or the rest of the world? Will you prayerfully consider that seriously for the next five years, thinking about where you will live and work on graduation? Sort of slipped you by remembering to actually sort of, yeah, I should... Well, in the power of your spirit within you, step out in faith and trust. That's fanning the spirit into flame, taking a step. It's not too late. Find that page at the back of the book with the LILR pledge. Go online and you know, make the pledge. Commit yourself. Action it before the Lord. Or if you stood up last night and said, Yes, Lord, send me as a gospel worker into your world. Or maybe you didn't stand, but it's been playing, playing on your mind and heart in the power of the Spirit. And you've been thinking about that. You've been praying about it. Should I do that? And you want to make that commitment, but you didn't stand up last night. Well, that's fine. Look, here it is, right here on the screen. You can just text your name to Matt Moffat. There's his number, right? You didn't actually, because it's not about standing at that, it's, it's about the commitment, isn't it? Yes, Lord, send me. So if you stood last night but didn't get around to texting or you still want to make that commitment, Do it in the power of His Spirit. Don't be timid. Fan into flame that Spirit within you that's moving you in that direction, if it is. If that's how the Spirit is moving you today, then listen to Him. Finally, number nine. We'll leave that on the screen. Oh, it's gone. Oh, well. Finally, number nine. Don't quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. So we talked about this on Wednesday night. Let's not quench the gifts of the Spirit amongst us. But remember, never separate the Spirit from the Word, for our God is one. So test everything against the Bible, the Spirit's book, so that you can discern what is truly the working of God's Spirit and what is not. Word and Spirit, always together. So there's a lot of things to do with the Spirit. So how are we going to finish then? The right way to finish is pray. Pray for the Spirit's powerful work in our lives. The New Testament contains some lovely Spirit-inspired prayers for the Spirit to work in our lives. We're going to finish our time together this week by reading three of them. So they're on page 49. We can take that off the screen now, thank you. They're on page 49, first of all from Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this Spirit-inspired prayer from the Apostle Paul. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, 
so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just reflect on this prayer for a moment. Here's a prayer for the work of the Spirit in our lives, yours and mine together. Here's a prayer we should make our own for ourselves and for each other. Paul prays for the Spirit who brings wisdom and revelation. But he gives it a very specific content. What sort of wisdom and revelation is he talking about? Well, he says there in verse 18, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know. You may know. And you may, he, said, he names two things. You may know two things. What are the two things that the apostle wants you to really know in the depths of your being in the power of the Spirit? First, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. It's like that blessing in Romans 15, 13 that we've talked about a few times this week, where the God of peace fills us with all hope in believing. But here he specifies what that hope is. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? God wants us to know just how blessed is the inheritance he stored up for us by grace. Just how rich, how glorious through the Spirit he, he, he plans to make you. He wants you to know that hope in the power of the Spirit. Remember that moment where I put up the two Branson kids and talked about how rich they were compared to us and completely wrecked up the whole mathematics. And... But remember the point from that, right? Which was, <laughs> he can't do arithmetic. Now, the point was, the point was to just talk about how rich is our inheritance in Christ in the ages to come. That's how rich we are. And that's the hope that he wants you to know in the power of the Spirit. But secondly, verse 19, he prays that they'll have this, this spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. And Paul here is pulling on the superlatives. He's trying to articulate the boundless, the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. And he shows you what God's power does. It was his, this power at work that raised Jesus from the dead and installed him of Lord of all with everything under his feet. That's the sort of power we're talking about. It's not the power you get from a Mars bar and a few cans of V. It's not the power of a few steroid injections. This is the power of God that smashed death and raised Jesus, installed him as Lord over every power and authority and dominion, every name in every age, now and in the age to come. That sort of power, God's power, measurably great, is at work in you. Not just in him. 
It's now at work in you, that power. So you're feeling too weak to live for Jesus. You're feeling too weak to stand for him. Too weak to really put things on the line and make sacrifices for him. Paul prays, Father of glory, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know the hope, the riches of your glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of your power for all who believe. What a great prayer to pray. And a bit later on in Ephesians 3, Paul prays again. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you might have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See there, verse 16, he prays to our Father that they'll be strengthened in their inner being with power through the Spirit. That sounds great. I'd like to be strengthened in my inner being with power through the Spirit, but power for what? Again, Paul specifies two things, power, first of all, verse 17, he prays for power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying for strengthened faith in the Lord Jesus. I'll be honest, I want greater faith in the Lord Jesus. I want to trust him more in all the decisions and situations in life. You want that? You want greater faith to trust Jesus more? Pray to be strengthened in our inner being with power through the Spirit so that our faith in Jesus might be strong. And second, verse 18, he prays that they'll have power to know the love of Jesus that's beyond knowing. I have a little theory here. It's not a very good theory, but a little theory that Paul was up really late at night writing this letter because he's just getting ridiculous. He can't be thinking straight. To know the love of Jesus that's beyond knowing. How can that be? Look at verse 18. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God's love for you in Jesus is more than you will ever know. He loves you that much, like so much more than you will ever know, even into all eternity. And you might think, oh, I think I understand it. I think I have a pretty good handle on God's love for me. Well, then shut up for a moment and listen to God. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you might have the power through the Spirit in your inner being to grasp more clearly the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for you in Jesus. I know you don't feel it every day, his great love for you. I know there's many moments where you wonder, does he really? And you have to look back at the cross to see that he does. Here is a prayer 
that we might have power from God through His Spirit to really grasp His limitless love for us in Jesus. What a great prayer to play. Final prayer, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who's enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. First of all, verses 9 and 10 there, Paul prays that they may be filled through the Spirit with knowledge of God's will for them. Not knowledge of what career you should have or what, what, where you should live or not even whether you should make the LRLR pledge or whether you should make the send me commitment. No, his will, specific will for you is your holiness. Verse 10, so that you may lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Be filled with knowledge of God's will for you in terms of holiness, so you live a life that pleases him. And second, verses 11 and 12, may you be made strong with all of his glorious power, to endure everything with patience, joyfully giving thanks to him who's graciously granted you to share in his inheritance. This is a picture of what the Spirit is doing in our life now as we wait for the day of Jesus' return. His Spirit is powerfully at work in us so we might abound in hope. So let's pray for each other, for all of our worldwide brothers and sisters in Christ, that through the Spirit, they and we might come to know our hope in Christ, that we might know his great power for us, that his power would strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus, that his power would help us to know the love of Christ that's beyond comprehending, that we'd be filled with a knowledge of his will so that we can live a life fully for him, that we've been strengthened to endure everything with patience and joy, giving thanks while we wait for the glories to come when Jesus Christ returns. That's what we want to do. Pray for the Spirit's glorious work in our lives to the praise and honour of God. So let me lead us in prayer. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I, might, might, that I may love what you do love, that I might do what you would do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Breathe on us, breath of God, till we are wholly thine, until this earthly part of us glows with your fire divine. 
Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with you the perfect life of your eternity. Amen.